Hi everyone, I'm Anne Helen Peterson and this is Work Appropriate. thing that I sometimes do on my Instagram account. What it is is I ask a question, usually about work, sometimes about life, but usually just related to work. And people respond to it either in like the little response box or they send me a DM and then I post what they respond anonymously. And I noticed a while ago that there was a woman who would respond a lot with a description of a workplace that seemed almost like a fairy tale. And the reason it seemed like a fairy tale is that it was a nonprofit that paid their workers really well, that was incredibly diverse, that had diversity, equity, inclusion, all that stuff just like built into the DNA of the organization. And importantly, this is a Black woman who was telling me, I really like working here. My name is Nicole Washington. I am a nonprofit operations manager, and I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. And she just, she's like, I, I worked at so many bad places. I do not know how this place has figured it out. So I thought that she would be a great person to come on and talk about problems that often afflict nonprofit organizations, any sort of organization that does passion work, but also about generally shitty workplace culture and how she's quit places where it just feels like there is no way that they can ever figure this out, at least with the way that the organization is currently set up but also what it feels like to work in a place where it does feel like they've figured it out, or at least started to figure it out. So can you tell me specifically about your organization, Neighborhood Funders Group? Because you actually, you first told me about it a while ago as like a place that somehow um, was managing to get something diversity and inclusion right, But it's hard work. And, you know, I remember when you told me that there was like a new job and I posted about it and people people went crazy. They were like, what is this magical organization? So can you tell me what you think makes it a non-shitty place to work or like maybe just a good place to work, a healthy place to work? I mean, it does feel a little bit like I found a unicorn because I have had some really terrible jobs. Um, I think at Neighborhood Funders Group, it sort of just all comes down to respect and the recognition that people are whole and complete people with lives and other things outside of work. And that while we are all very connected and feel very motivated by the work that we do, like there are there are other things, you know, people have families that they have to take care of. One of the things I really like about NFG is that family doesn't necessarily mean like your parents or your kids. It can mean literally anyone who matters to you. Um, I actually had to drop everything uh, last Monday to go help a friend who was having a really hard time. Uh, And my boss is like, okay, great. We'll reschedule the meeting. You know, let me know when you can get back to it. Um, So those are the things I think that make it a a good place to work, a great place to work even. In terms of DEI, um, I was actually, we just had like our first in-person gathering of all of the staff or most of the staff. And I was looking around the room and I was like, there are like literally no white people here. There's like two white (laughs) women. And I think that's it. And I think... (laughs) 
First of all, that is extremely unusual for me in a nonprofit workplace. And I yeah, think in, I was just going to say, yeah, in any yeah, workplace. Nonprofits. Although my last organization was run by um, a Black man and was almost entirely staff of color, which was a really great introduction to New Orleans. Um, but because we have so many different kinds of people, and I mean that in terms of age, although I think we could probably do a little bit better there, uh, in terms of gender identity, in terms of race, like literally everything that you could think of, um, or almost everything that you could think of, we could do better about people with disabilities, but like we can always do better. Um, but because yeah. we have so many different kinds of people, it means that we are tapped into very different groups. Our social circles are different. Um, the places that we graduated from, if there are like school networks or anything like that, it's all very different, which means that you, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like you get one person in the door who is not like a cis white man. And all of a sudden, all the other people through the door are not cis white men. Um, and I, I, wish I knew what the secret sauce was and how NFG started doing that. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't, I've only been there for, I think it's about two and a half years. Um, but I will say that walking in and being interviewed by people who look like me was one of the most refreshing feelings that I have ever had. Just to backtrack, I want to first try to explain what NFG does. Um, it's kind of complex, but I think you probably are good at explaining because people ask you what you do. And then also just acknowledge for people who have not worked in the nonprofit sphere that it's a place that is often really, really white. A lot of women, um, but there's a lot of monoculture going on in terms of like people coming from similar backgrounds a lot of times. Oh, incredibly. I actually made a promise to myself uh, several jobs ago, several bad jobs ago, that I was no longer going to work for a white man because my mental health couldn't take it. Uh, and it frankly closed off a lot of avenues to me. There were a lot of jobs right. that I was just like, nope, nope, can't do that. Can't, can't go through the breakdown again. Um, mm -hmm. NFG, Neighborhood Funders Group. So I work for a specific part of NFG called the Amplify Fund. We're a little bit different in that we actually do make grants. Uh, NFG itself is like philanthropy serving organization, I think. PSO is yeah. what they're called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a home for progressive funders. Uh, it's for people who, foundations and other like philanthropic partners who want to make the world a better place to have somewhere to go to talk about best practices to meet people who are doing the same sort of work or working in the same places and to generally just like be among like minds um i think that that actually contributes a lot to the diversity in general because the sorts of people who are doing that work and who are interested in that work are oftentimes white but are oftentimes the people who are most affected by these issues uh which are mm. people who look like me and since no one can see me i'm a black woman our first question is from d who sort of feels like she's all alone in her workplace our executive producer kendra is going to read it i'm a black female software engineer in my late 20s I'm going into my third software engineering job, and I was hoping to find some advice for heading off a problem that I've experienced in both of my prior roles. I'm always one of the only women, and I'm also generally one of the only people of color. I'm generally surrounded by white men in their late 30s and early 40s, and it feels like my coworkers are afraid to be honest or give me constructive criticism about my work. I don't know if it's something about me or the way I act or if it's because they're afraid of being perceived as going too hard on a young black woman. 
Regardless, it doesn't help my career growth, and it means I'm kind of floating and alone at work all the time. I see my other coworkers getting casual mentorship and having a great rapport with their seniors. But even when I try really hard to establish a great connection, senior folks don't ask me about my actual work. I ask for feedback and I always get a very general, oh, you're doing great, even when I'm pretty sure I'm really not. It makes me feel really isolated and like I'm losing my mind sometimes. Am I imagining the idea of constructive criticism and frequent feedback at work? Or am I actually missing out on something vital? All right. So with obviously the caveat that we don't know the entire situation here, just reading this description, what do you think is going on here, Nicole? I mean, my initial inclination is to be like, you probably are doing great work. You're probably doing excellent work. There probably isn't a whole lot of constructive criticism to be given and you're just being too hard on yourself. That is like my gut reaction. But like, let's just assume for a minute, maybe that like you're not doing as well as you think you or as I think you are. Um, I would say, oh man, it's really hard. I've been the only one, the only woman, the only black person, the only black woman at a lot of different jobs, particularly ones with like sort of, um, I am not in my late twenties, but with white men who were like a generation or so ahead of me. And it's really rough because it's hard to find something that you can relate to them on or that they think they can relate to you on. This is where sports is really good. It's sort of like this perfect (laughs) thing that like everyone talks about and like can have an opinion about. It's like the weather. You can have casual conversations about it. And like, that's a way to people to like see you as a real person and not just as some like scary entity. My advice for this person would be to go outside of the organization. Like Mm. these people, it sounds like are always going to be uncomfortable around you. And that's not your problem to solve, right? Like if your problem is that you are not getting constructive criticism or feedback and you need mentorship, then you need to go outside of the organization to solve it, which is annoying and terrible. And you shouldn't have to do that. And it's extra work. But the fact of the matter is that if this is the way that they're behaving towards you, I'm not really sure that I would trust what they have to say anyways. Right. And it also seems, and maybe I'm just getting this vibe, but it seems like these people are well-intentioned white people who are not being good managers or good mentors because they have (laughs) hangups that are making it so that they can't talk openly or or like you said like they they view her as like some sort of scary entity not as just a person who you all also, can't see this but i'm nodding along <laughs> <laughs> who, who wants the same mentorship as anyone would want yeah what are what are your experience like have you had any experience like this where you felt like people aren't talking they're like talking to you as a, a black woman not as you nicole talking at you instead of to you yep Yeah. Uh, This goes back to one of my longstanding beefs, which is that not everyone is cut out to be a manager. Like moving up in the hierarchy of an organization and doing certain skills better does not automatically mean that you know how to manage people. That is a separate concrete skill that not everyone has. And that's okay. And also a skill that people don't want to invest money in. Like if you don't know how to manage people, like you're organization could help you learn. But a lot of them are like, oh no, it's fine. We'll just promote you. And you'll somehow magically out of the ether, like the stork will drop off management skills. <laughs> um, it's, I could go on about this forever. No, this is, uh, this is a theme of this podcast is every, every single episode, we somehow talk about this fact, which to me shows just how 
big of a problem it is with every single type of workplace, and especially in nonprofits where there's not a lot of ways to advance within the organization or to get pay raises other than becoming a manager. Yep. Other than becoming a manager. And sometimes not even then a lot of the deal with nonprofits. I've worked in nonprofits my entire career with the exception of one organization that I was working for that was a nonprofit and briefly became not. And then I left. So it didn't matter. Um, I have really struggled to find mentorship in the nonprofit space. It's been really hard for me. I would honestly say, I don't really think that I have it I mean, I have it more now, but still Mm. it's not great. What I ended up doing was I relied on my friends. I have a friend who happens to be a white woman who does the same sort of general work that I do, but was a little bit farther along in her career. And that's who I use to bounce ideas off of, to ask. I I really relied on my friend group, um, her in particular, but a bunch of other friends who covers sort of like the gamut, right? Like there are lawyers, there are consultants, there are teachers, just like a whole bunch of people doing a whole bunch of things. Usually though, people who are marginalized and hold some sort of marginalized identity. Uh, And so we're navigating, if not the exact same problem, a similar problem that I am. Uh, And it sucks and it's annoying and we shouldn't have to do that because there are these whole mentorship networks that come built in when you are a white dude, but it is what it is. Yeah. And I think sometimes we imagine mentorship as like really replicating the age and experience difference that comes with like, I don't know, like a senior professor and a student, right? Like you think Uh that you're going to, your mentor is someone who is at least 20 years older than you or at least 15, like 10 years. But I think, like you said, sometimes a mentor can be someone who actually has insight and experience in some way into the situation that you're facing, right? Right. I just need somebody to help me figure out how much money I should be asking for or how (laughs) I should be asking for that money or if I need to tweak my resume. Like it's sort of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, That's the stuff where I'm like, oh, who do I ask? Well, I can't ask this weird boss that won't really talk to me because he thinks I'm too different from him. So I'll outsource to my friends and see what happens. Thankfully, my friends are pretty good. They've given me solid advice. I have now tried to give that advice to, for instance, my little cousin as she's not very little. I hope she doesn't hear this. She'll be very (laughs) upset that I call her little. Um, She's always my little cousin, though. And she starts to navigate the work world because I'm like, no, your friends have terrible ideas. Like, don't, y'all are just out of college. Don't listen to them. Like, here you go. I think the idea of mentorship too can be, people tend to get really stuck on it, focusing on a specific industry. And while that is important, definitely, like maybe you need a, a sponsor for lack of a better term in that industry. Really, I think mentorship is about sort of developing those soft skills. I hate calling them that, but I can't think of a better term at work. And you don't necessarily need someone in your own company, even in your own industry to do that. Right. And sometimes someone too, who can be outside of your industry and say, the way this is going is not okay. Right. Yeah. The the way that they're treating you, the way that they deal with um, feedback, the way that they talk about compensation, like none of this is okay. And it takes someone who isn't fully imbricated into the organization to be able to, to say that to you. Yes. Which is to say to our letter writer, D, uh, you are not losing your mind. I am so sorry it makes you feel isolated. I oof, I have been there. I get that. Um, I can't go down this rabbit hole, but 
I also have a lot of thoughts on performance reviews and criticism, constructive criticism and feedback at work. I'm very lucky now to work in a workplace where I get sort of like very direct and immediate feedback, which is perfect for me. Like, tell me, I don't want to wait for six months for you to catalog my series of wrongs. Like if I am messing up right now, or if there is a better way to do it, tell me right now and I'll make the change. Or I'll explain to you why I don't think I should make the change and we can have a conversation about it. Don't like, don't save it up and just, no, that's terrible. No, it's like, I'm the, too anxious like... for that. It's too, <laughs> no. And if you're just like falling asleep every night thinking about the like demerits that have gone into the little book with your name next to it, it's a horrible I'm thinking about live. that anyways. Don't prove <laughs> me right. <laughs> Okay, so theoretically, if this person decides that they do want to stay, is there anything that they could say to their boss? Or is that just like, it's not going to get through their head? I mean, I think that there are always things that you can say. It just depends, frankly, on how hard you want to try. Right. Um, I The thing that kills me about this sort of stuff is that it's always the extra work is always being put on the person who has the lower role, least resources, whatever, and that it makes me so angry. But uh, if I knew I wanted to stay in this job and I wanted to do something about this, here's what I would do is maybe start scheduling a one-on-one with your boss once a week, once every other week, something like that. Uh, Go in with a list of what you're working on and say, these are the things I have questions about or I'd like your feedback on. I think the more specific you could make it, probably the better it would be. Because if you ask someone, oh, how am I doing a good job? It's very easy to say like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're doing fine. But if you ask someone, hey, I have this, I am not a software engineer, so like, I don't know. (laughs) But like, I have this specific question about this part of the grant report. I'm a little unsure. This is what I think I should do. How does that resonate with you? Like the specific questions are a lot harder to sort of like weasel your way out of. So I think that's probably what I would do is just come in one-on-one with very specific questions that you can't give me like a fake answer to. And also, again, don't be afraid to push and say, okay, could you tell me more about that? Or... Uh, well, this is why I was thinking what I was thinking. Like that sort of way to open up a dialogue, that is my best answer. Although I would probably just leave, but that's always my response. It's just like, life is too short. I've waited tables before. I will wait tables again. I'm out. And there's no moral balance in quitting a job. No. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Indeed. Ambitious hiring goals for the last quarter of 2022? With a powerful hiring partner, big goals are no big deal. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is the screenings and assessments tool. Indeed helps star applicants shine before the interview with assessment tests they can take from cooking to coding. Indeed assessments helps take the stress out of the interview process. Candidates get to show their skills before the interview so you can dive deeper into talking about what's important to you. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at indeed.com appropriate. Offer good for a limited time. 
Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash appropriate. Indeed.com slash appropriate. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Shopify. What's that? It's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your style, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing. From an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify has got you every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you will too. Shopify makes selling simple so you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. When you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform backing millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash workappropriate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash workappropriate to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash workappropriate. Our second question is about trying to improve your corner of an unjust world. This question comes from Abby and our producer Melody is going to read it. How do you make your workplace less exploitative when the industry standard is paying people below a living wage? I ask as someone who works in the arts within academia. The arts industry has a history of unpaid internships or paying artists peanuts because they love their work. And academia runs on adjuncts. I am a middle manager trying to advocate for more resources in order to pay my staff better and create living wage positions. What successes has anyone found in advocating for better treatment for their workers when working in a field where the standard is part-time jobs that don't pay enough to survive? Are there any universities moving away from the over-reliance on adjunct faculty? And how have nonprofits moved away from unpaid internships? So... (laughs) I have a one-word answer to this question. (laughs) Well, first, I just want to acknowledge that a lot of these fields, particularly the arts and nonprofits, have a history of being the sort of work that wives would do for, like, pen money. Yeah. Pen money is, like, a a word for, like, oh, it's just, like, extra work, right? So, like, there was just this this structural understanding that you didn't need to pay them a living wage because they had a husband who was making the living wage for a family. It's the 1950s version of allowance. 100%. And I think we have not moved away from that understanding, not in the way that nonprofits conceive of how they compensate their employees. So that's kind of a separate question than what's happening in academia, but I think we can focus on the nonprofit arts sphere of this. What's your one word answer though? Unionize. That is my one word answer. (laughs) Uh, NFG actually just recognized uh, its (gasps) employee union, which I am a very proud member of. Amazing. Um, This is the first time I've ever been in a union. It's very exciting. Uh, It's also weird because it has not been a very combative process so far, which is Mm -hmm. possibly like (laughs) one of the few times that like someone joining or a group of employees joining a union and management was like, 
yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go to the negotiating table and like figure this out. Like that is not normal. Um, I cannot speak to academia, but I can definitely speak to sort of like arts nonprofits, the nonprofit industry in general, and not being paid a living wage. I think a lot of the concerns are the same. Um, and nonprofits, you obviously are very animated and you care about your work. And so somehow that justifies being paid peanuts. Um, I will say coming to NFG is the first time in my adult life and I have been working for a while that I actually feel like I make enough money that I can live off of, Um, which is a wild thing. But this also goes back to one of my other big bugaboos in nonprofits, um, which is that you have to pay people. You have to pay for operations for the back end for the things that donors don't want to fund because they see it as extra. I'm using yep. air quotes. Yeah. Um, you you have to pay. Otherwise, you have staff turnover, you have terrible uh benefits. Like you just you have to pay people. They are not volunteers, they are there to work. Work implies a paycheck, first of all. Second of all, in terms of being like a middle manager, I have never been a middle manager. But I do know what I have wanted from my middle managers, which is that, I mean, the answer is to pay people more. The answer just flat out is that you should be paying people more, period, full stop, end of story. I recognize that that is oftentimes out of your hands or there's not really a whole lot you can do about it. So look into scaling back the work that they're doing, frankly, like you should act your wage. That's a a TikTok thing, sort of like quiet quitting and all those other, but like, if you are only paying me half of a living wage, then I am only doing half of the work that you are asking me to do. Number one, you should be glad because it means that I will frankly last longer than I would burning out trying to do all of this work for no pay. But also like, I think, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier, I think in a lot of these fields, because people are so underpaid and because they do so much great work, there is a very incorrect assumption about how much money it actually takes to do things, like how much money it takes to run a program, how much money it takes to teach a class. Like if you're willing to do it for $10 an hour, even though it actually costs more like $40 an hour, then all of a sudden that $10 an hour is the going rate and everybody gets underpaid. So I think it's It's hard to do anything individually, but I am a big, big believer that if you are in any position of privilege, whether that be because you're a manager, whether that be because you have seniority, whether that be because you're better paid than some of your colleagues, like it's up to you to stick your neck out and try and bring everyone else like up to whatever level of benefits or money or whatever you have. So I frankly would uh, revise some work plans and be like, all right, if this is the amount of money that I have to pay people, this is the amount of work we can get done. And that's that. Also, never, ever, ever, ever tell your employees they can't get part-time jobs. (laughs) Right, totally. Well, and that's the sort of thing that the like the more subtle work that you can do as a middle manager when you feel like, okay, I don't have a lot of power to fight against like state funding apparatuses. Right. Uh But I do have power to try to make my employees working lives under me (laughs) not as exploitative. So that means cutting the scope of the work. Right. Which I think oftentimes in a lot of different situations, there's this idea of like we need to do as much as we possibly can with as little as we can to show how devoted we are to the cause. 
And that doesn't serve anyone. It doesn't serve the people doing the work. I think you get like lower quality service in terms of like the way that you serve your community, but the art you produce, all those things. I mean, not to get into the healthcare field, but also are you like trying to get your doctor to do more with less? Like, no. Right. That's the thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is kind of uh, adjacent to the point, but talking about organizations that are really bad at DEI, and I think a lot of nonprofits are really bad at DEI, part of it is that, you know, if you pay people as if it's not a full-time job, the only people who can afford to take that job are people for whom it is a part-time job, right? And a lot of times that's people who are not just partnered, but also who come from wealth, who come from privilege in some capacity. And by wealth, I don't mean like super, super rich. I mean, People who don't parents have parents that can afford debt. to subsidize your rent, right? Even exactly. if they're not paying all of it, just like a couple hundred bucks a month can make a huge difference. Right. I couldn't take a single unpaid internship when I was in college. It just was no. not feasible for me. <laughs> there was no way that I could be working and not getting paid for my time. I will also say that at every job I have had since then, sometimes more successfully than others, I have campaigned for us to pay our interns because I feel like as Someone who is in the role of a full-time employee at the organization, it is the very least I can do. Yeah. If we're thinking about pipelines, internships are pipelines. If you make internships exclusive, then like that's the, that's the type of person that's going to be fed into the field too. Right. And it goes back to this whole idea too, that like, why are you hiring unpaid interns when you should be hiring a full-time employee? <laughs> like why right. that's why it's so much cheaper to do this work. Cause you're just straight up, like not paying people. And that I think gets to the heart of like, be honest about the sort of work that needs to be done instead of yeah. being like, what is the least amount that we could pay someone to get this work done? It's not serving anyone. And I think, you know, your first point about thinking about unionization I think this is something we're seeing across the nonprofit sector right now. And as a middle manager, you might not be able to be part of that union, but you can support it in a lot of other ways, too. You absolutely can. That is very much the case uh, at NFG. Also, if anyone listening to this wants to unionize, I will happily give you my email address and we can connect with some folks that will help. Amazing. Work Appropriate is brought to you by NetSuite. 2000, 2008, 2022. When it comes to the economy, those are some scary years. Dot-com crash, housing crash, and the roller coaster we're going through right now. One thing is certain, it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers. But over 31,000 businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on NetSuite by Oracle, the number one cloud financial system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting, so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. So how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer is NetSuite. NetSuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improved their visibility and control when they upgraded to NetSuite. What are you waiting for? Right now, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind special financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash work right now. netsuite.com slash work. That's netsuite.com slash work. Good news, podcast fans. You can get America's number one late-night show, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, as a podcast. The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. 
You'll get everything you love about The Late Show, from Stephen's monologue to fascinating interviews with newsmakers and celebrities delivered straight to your ears. You'll hear from guests like Anderson Cooper, Kerry Washington, and Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. You'll even discover some podcast-exclusive moments that you won't see on TV, like extended interviews and throwback Colbert classics. And Stephen even takes a few audience questions. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert seven days a week, available wherever you get your podcasts. So for our third question, this is what happens when diversity, equity, inclusion just becomes like a committee that is crammed into an otherwise dysfunctional workplace. Here's Katie. I'm a person of color who works in a digital agency that prides itself on focusing on projects for the public good. Despite the fact that it's constantly patting itself on the back for how open and welcoming it is, there's a fair amount of resistance to diversity, equity and inclusion work at all levels. And senior leaders don't seem to see the problem with DEI activity being done by volunteers who are fitting it in around their frantically busy day jobs. How do I, as someone who suffers because the company can't or doesn't want to see that its approach to DEI is pretty basic, cope with the massive gap between its self-image and reality? So this is the sort of question which is exactly why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Like, I think you are in some ways uniquely equipped to answer a question like this. Like, DEI is not an initiative or a committee or an activity. It has to be the entire organization. So what do you think's going on with this problem? Like, how common is this problem? What do you do in a situation like this? My immediate thought is that... uh don't talk about it, be about it. And if you were constantly talking about how open and welcoming you are, then like, that's a huge red flag. To me. <laughs> um, yes. One of the things I love about NFG is that we don't, I mean, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in our work. We don't use those terms, but we talk about it a lot in our work. But in terms of the actual organization, it's just baked in to everything. So you don't have to talk about it. You can look around an NFG meeting room and be like, Oh, yeah, right. You can look at the list of people who are on the board and see, oh, yeah. And this is really, really hard and actually kind of relates a little bit to the last question with the middle manager. Uh, I have a friend who is a white woman who has campaigned for the people that she manages to be paid um, a stipend. It's not enough, but it was what she could get uh, for their volunteer DEI work, um, which is like the very, very, very bare minimum, I think, but is a good place to start to say, okay, this is actual work. And I really hate that, you know, America capitalism, you have to justify it this way. List out your activities. Be like, these are all of the things that I have done or that this group of volunteers have done. This is the number of hours that it took. This is the amount of value that we have brought to the company in doing these things and you need to pay us for them or we need a reduction in our work responsibilities and our work plan to match up with that. If your company is very loudly patting itself on how open and welcoming it is, patting itself on the back for that, I don't necessarily know that this approach is going to go over well with them because it sounds to me like they are doing exactly as much as they feel like they should be doing. And I am of the mind that as a person of color, myself, it's not up to you to do that work, right? Like you did not create this problem. If you want to educate, if you want to push, that's fine. I personally am not in, that's not how I operate, not anymore. 
it's too much work. It's too heavy of a burden to take on, especially with everything else. Um, so I would start looking for another job personally, or I would start scaling back the amount that I am doing and say, until you pay me to do these extra things, until you pay these volunteers to do these extra things, like I can't, I have, tell me what I can take off of my plate to do this. Like, again, it's about imposing the real cost on the company. Like if you really want to do this, this is what it takes. And this is how you're going to have to budget for it. And whether that be in terms of money or in terms of positions, people like person hours, all of that. I feel like oftentimes white people think of DEI as like an add-on that you can add to your Chrome browser, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you Mm -hmm. just download DEI onto your browser, there you got it in your organization. Instead of thinking of it the way that I think white people are challenged to think about privilege, which is that part of it is like sharing it means also giving away some of yours, right? Yep. So it means that... You can't just be like, all right, like I look at the C-suite and I'm like, okay, let's, it's pretty white in here. Why don't we hire the head of HR or the head of DEI will be a, a person of color. And then- Or sometimes uh, IT. Sometimes you can get it, get as far as IT. All of that work, the work of diversifying the company, of, of creating equity will fall onto this one person instead of how do we completely rethink the way that the board works? How do we think of, rethink the way the promotion works? How do we change it so that we aren't like the the word that people often use to describe nonprofit organizations is snow capped, right? Where it's like white on the top. Uh, yep. And then mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they have a lot of people in entry level positions. They do a lot of recruiting where they bring in people of color or underrepresented minorities, but to no one underpay them yep. terrible salaries. <laughs> burn them out and mm-hmm. no one advances up the mountain. So I think you're right that this is a company that at least in this current stance. They're not interested in changing, right? They're interested no. in, in having a DEI committee on their website. They're not interested. They're in interested in the appearance yeah. of caring about this. They're yes. not interested in actually caring about it, which unfortunately I think is probably very, very, actually, not, I think it's probably, it is very, very common. Um, I am a person who has quit jobs without things lined up, has quit jobs with it, has just left jobs because I wasn't feeling it. Uh, And the older I get, the more I'm like, that sometimes, like, I I know we exist in a capitalist society. I know everyone has bills to pay. I know that if, like me, you were a person of color, there is a great chance that you were supporting people outside of your household as well. But at a certain point, you just have to decide how much of yourself you're willing to sacrifice to this institution. I am reminded of something that one of my absolute favorite Twitter, Instagram, like per, like someone who I just love, Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom, my who too. I think is incredible. <laughs> yep. Uh, but she produced these little uh, like note cards that said the institution will not love you. Yeah. As my mother always says, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow and they will replace you. So it's it's a line for everyone. It depends on where you're working, where you are in your career, how much you're getting paid, all that kind of stuff. But you have to decide how much of yourself you are willing to sacrifice to be in that environment. I think as a sort of follow-up question, I want to know in your various job searches, instead of thinking about the red flags, what have been the signs, <laughs> the indicators that you think a company is doing the work? So if someone is trying to find a different organization, 
that they're not going to find themselves in a place like where this question author found themselves? What should they be on the lookout if they're looking for jobs? Um, for me personally, I am always researching. I want to see, I, I'm going to confine this to nonprofits because those are the jobs that I've had and the ones that I know the most about. I am looking at your senior leadership team. I'm looking at your program heads. Uh, I'm looking to see if the only, like, if you have a mix of people, what you're identifying about those people on your website, if the only people of color are in support roles or maybe head of HR or something like that, like you're looking across and uh, vertically and horizontally in the organization. I, like I said, uh, having like a diversity mission statement or something like that is a little bit of a red flag to me. Uh, but I'm looking at your actual body of work, right? Like, who are you funding? Where are these groups? What kind of work are they doing? I think all of those things give you like a pretty good sense. Also, I'm looking at who you want to interview me. Who am I talking to? Mm. What is their position? How do they relate in the organization? How many people are there? Like that, I think you can learn a lot in an interview and a thing that I had to learn the hard way and that I always try to remind my friends and people I know now is that an interview goes both ways, right? Like you are also learning about the organization and you shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. If you are someplace where the questions that you are asking are making people upset, like that's a dead giveaway that you don't need to be working for that organization. Right. Like if even bringing up the topic is making people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. And I think in, in this... I would like to think that in this day and age that every recruiter, every person interviewing should be ready for a question about why the makeup of their staff or their grantees or their program partners or whatever is the way that it is. And if you don't have a good answer to that question, like that tells me a lot right there. One tip that I heard from an academic is that they would find a person of color who had left the university and email them and say, what was it like to be a person of color in this institution? Yes. And even if you're not in academia, that's a little bit easier in academia just because CVs, all this sort of thing. But you can pay for a one-month uh, pro subscription to LinkedIn, and that allows you to search previous employees of an organization. And you can just kind of go through there. And then you, when you have that premium subscription, you can also message them. And I think this is sort of like the, the low-key type of mentorship that we were talking about before. Like, that's the sort of advice that you can give others and others can give you before you go to an organization or if you're just like looking at potential organizations. And use your friends, your Whisper Network, people that you know. Um, I live in New Orleans now. I used to live in Washington, D.C. When I moved to New Orleans, I sent an email to all my friends that said, hey, I'm moving. If you know anyone that you think I would like, let me know. You can do the same thing. Like, hey, I'm looking for a job or I'm looking at this specific position at this company. Does anyone know anything about it or who works there? Have you heard anything? For the places that I've worked, I am more than happy to tell you about the things that I did like, did not like, why I left, that sort of thing. I also always ask in an interview why the person before me left the position. Uh -huh. uh, and you can tell a lot just about, it doesn't actually matter what they say. You can tell a lot just by the way whoever it is answers the question. If they get visibly uncomfortable, if they don't really have an answer, if like you can tell a whole lot just by the way that they respond to that question, setting aside the actual words coming out of their mouth. This has been so wonderful. 
you have so much wisdom to impart and I hope we get to have you back on the show sometime soon. But thank you again. I would love to come back. Thank you so much for having me. Also, where can people find you and NFG on the internet? Uh, so you can find NFG at nfg.org. Uh, we have a whole new website. It's very great looking. Uh, I believe that there is a picture of me somewhere on the website. If you find it, I will write you a thank you email. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you can also find me on Instagram and on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Nicole WDC. So N-I-C-O-L-E-W-D-C. Um, and my Instagram account is mostly private, but I have one that I post a lot of food pictures on because isn't that what Instagram is for? And it is things I ate or made. <laughs> I love it. Thank you again. <laughs> Thanks so much to Nicole Washington for joining me and thanks to everyone who wrote in with questions about shitty office culture. I'm sure we'll have many, many episodes about this, so keep them coming. You can find submission guidelines at workappropriate.com or you can send a voice memo with your question to workappropriate at crooked.com. I want to be clear about this. No question is too weird. <laughs> Work Appropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Ann Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Sandy Gerard. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Allison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow. Additional production support from Ari Schwartz. And special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismer. You can follow me on Twitter at Ann Helen or on Instagram at Ann Helen Peterson. You can sign up for my newsletter at annhelen.substack.com. Subscribe to Work Appropriate wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll meet you here next Wednesday as we answer questions about management and the question that was also part of this episode, which is, what do you do about people who continually get promoted to management positions just because they're good at their jobs, not because they're good at actually managing? That's next week. You won't want to miss it. <laughs>